You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network. In partnership with Wish TV, you can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Colts, former Colts player, Marlon Jackson, but he's a hell of a lot more than a football player, as we're going to learn today. He's going to talk to us a little bit about his career, what it's like to intercept Tom Brady, football rivalries, and we're joined by our co-host and great friend, Danielle Shockey, CEO, Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Marlon and Danielle, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit of my story. Perfect. And thanks for having me, Robert. It's always a pleasure to join and co-host. <laughs> and I'm particularly excited to co-host today as we talk to a, uh, a fellow, fellow nonprofit um, leader in the community trying to uh, make make a difference in the lives of youth in central Indiana. So I, I feel a little bit of a kinship in that way to you, Marlon, um, being with the Girl Scouts. I think we're, you know, we both probably see a bright future in all of our children's, um, you know, next steps. And we're just trying to help where we can. So with that, um, offline, we talked a little bit about some of your work, but you mentioned you're a social entrepreneur. Tell our audience what does that mean in your work, professional, personal life? What does it mean to be a social entrepreneur in 2020 in Indiana, Indianapolis? So I, I think we think of entrepreneurship in the process of starting and building a business. And I think, you know, in, in society, a capitalistic society as we live in, we, we think profit, right? Profit driven. Profit is nice, but as a social entrepreneur, I, I'm after impact first and foremost. And I believe with the impact and chasing that, that the profits will, will follow. So just, you know, in terms of my focus, um, why I'm in business and the impact that I'm looking to make, it is purpose-driven and it's impact-driven to influence society um, in a positive way, social, the communities, the relationship within them, um, and to be a positive impact and be a leader um, in terms of where I focus my time, effort, and energies um, with my business endeavors. Are, would you say all or most of your social entrepreneurship ventures are geared towards young people? 
Um, no, they're, they're, they're not all geared towards young people. They, they've kind of been spread across the board, um, impacting our youth as well as adults. Um, you know, with Fight for Life, it's been obviously focused on, focusing on our youth through education and relationships with school systems. But I, I, I founded uh, Revive Property and Construction Group, so developing affordable housing solutions for single families, single families, um, single parent households. And then, you know, in, in my latest endeavor, Pulse Analytics, it, it's uh, influencing the relationship between citizens and police agencies and trying to create through technology, build a bridge to bring customer service and efficient oversight management um, to policing to increase and to empower citizens to bring transparency to police agencies and to bring accountability through third party oversight organizations as well. So kind of being able to bridge, uh, build a bridge, um, looking at society uh, and really addressing needs, social needs. You know, obviously there's a lot going on 2020, unrest with policing, um, you know, affordable housing. There's, a, there's a, a huge need there, a huge gap of inequality. Um, and then just in, you know, with our youth and, and uh, social emotional learning and developing positive mindset to, mindsets to shape behavior, you know, that's a major need. So these are just three sectors, three areas within society that I've chosen to, fo to focus my energy and my efforts to, to make a difference and create an impact that's going to, you know, create positive impact and effects for everybody in society. How did you, so you grew up, we talked offline, you grew up not in Indianapolis. So maybe tell our listeners where you grew up and what made you decide to go ahead and kind of have your roots for your family, as well as these, I guess, these endeavors take place in Indianapolis. How yep. did that come to be? So, you know, I, I was born in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, um, raised just across the border in Sharon, Pennsylvania, um, a, a very humble community, um, you know, an industrial community really built, built upon the steel, the, steel, uh, the steel industry, which collapsed obviously a long time ago in, in that area which left, left that area uh, really depressed, Youngstown, Ohio, Sharon, Pennsylvania. Um, so I grew up in the, the hood. I grew up in the, the ghetto. Um, I grew up in, in poverty, um, you know, and, you know, dealing with the, my environment and the circumstances of my, of my parent. I grew up in a single parent household, my mother, um, and, you know, navigating her trauma um, and her poor decision-making because of her trauma. Um, and, you know, finding myself in uh, not the best situations or circumstances when it comes to, you know, having role models, um, when it comes to making positive decisions, you know, um, in, in my life, uh, I've, I've not been perfect as no one is um, in, in growing up, you know, because of the lack of male role models and role models in general, you know, I made some poor decisions that really, you know, had me at risk, but not knowing that I was at risk and not knowing that I was really combating, that I was uh, stacking up my adverse childhood experiences, um, that I was combating my mother's social determinants of health, you know, the, the drug abuse, um, her incarceration, um, you know, dealing with abandonment, you know, um, you know, I, I left home when I was when I was 11 years old, um, 
you know, and I went to go live with a, an, an aunt and uncle and I was taken, I was taken in by, by those individuals. And at the same time, you know, I, I still had to deal with adverse circumstances and overcome obstacles. I felt, I, I found myself um, at age 13, you know, e evicted and put out on the street, you know, after my, my aunt and uncle went through a divorce, um, you know, and, and continuing to persevere and move forward, you know, in this environment of the, of the hood, of the ghetto, dealing with poverty, dealing with drug abuse, um, but at the same time, having sports be my outlet, um, where it was that relationship that helped me develop the social emotional qualities that I needed to succeed. But I didn't know, I didn't know any of these terms. I didn't know any of these things. Like, you know, I was just living, right? And, and I was just trying to make it from day to, trying to make it from day to day. Um, as, as ever you in those types of environments, it, it, it's, it's hard to see the future. Um, it's hard to see beyond, you know, your, your circumstance or your environment, um, which leads to poor decision-making. But be, because of all of that, you know, uh, what I experienced, the negative and the positive, you know, it influences, like, the work that I do today. I, I mentioned purpose, like, you know, um, and, and just mentioning a few of those things that I've mentioned so far, you, you can see why, like, you know, because I was evicted at one time and I found myself on the street, you know, because I grew up in Section 8 housing, I know the importance of quality, affordable housing for single families. Um, because I didn't have a lot of role models, right, to actually teach me how to be a man, how to treat a woman, um, how to be responsible and go to work on a day-to-day -day basis, how to provide, um, you know, and, and the consequences of my decision-making. You know, that's why I've developed Fight the Fight for Life Foundation. Um, and even just, you know, as, as a black man in America and in, in dealing with assumptions, um, you know, perception versus reality. And so often as a black man, you're, you're assumed, you know, some, some form of assumption of the guilt of something. Um, and when you grow up in the hood and the ghetto, um, you know, when you're young, it, it's very friendly with the police, but as you get older, it starts to kind of become a little bit colder and kind of looking at you differently. Um, and because of that, all of that reality in my experiences is why I felt like, you know, um, developing something to help with that relationship and to bridge that gap between citizens and communities and police and to bring forth, you know, transparency um, to policing and accountability um, through technology. You know, I, I felt those are all, all important things that are in line with my purpose here on earth. That's tremendous. Can you, I mean, that's just... I, the purpose part of what you just described, I think, is probably that key. It's a key to the success. You're, you're, um, you bring something different to the conversation. But back to the talk about Indianapolis, because you could have chosen anywhere in the country to do this. And maybe I have a, maybe my question is leading because I saw you were one of the recipients of the Lilly Endowment Youth Resiliency Dollars recently. Um, and again, being a peer nonprofit leader, we have a special place in Indianapolis, I think, that really supports nonprofit leaders with purpose and vision like yours. Um, so I don't know if it's a cart before the horse or what my question is, but do you find that Indianapolis is a place where you have this vision and this dream and it's, and it's maybe not easy, 
it's easier than it's other easier. places. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Like, you know, just because of like one, like the the size of the community, paired with the heart of the community, like that that Hoosier mentality of togetherness of you know, um, not necessarily a hand out, but a hand, you know, a hand, a hand up. You know, um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna we're open to providing opportunities when we see potential. You know. Um, and, and the ability to navigate Indianapolis with establishing and building the relationships that you need to scale something, to build something. This is a place of accessibility when it comes to leadership. Um, like, it, I mean, you're, yourself, like, you know, um, you, you, you've been in, uh, you know, politics, um, you know, you're a, a nonprofit leader and, you know, I, because of a relationship in between us, you knew somebody, I knew someone that was in between us. I reached out, you know, for some guidance, you know, for some insight into nonprofit work and what I was doing. And you were gracious enough to grant me some time to sit down and, and look at what I was doing to provide feedback. Like that's what Indianapolis is, right? I mean, you know, there, there, there aren't a, a bunch of egos. Um, there's not a lot of bureaucracy you know, individuals are actually accessible, you know, and it's only one or two degrees of separation here because of the size, which, you know, if you are an entrepreneur, if you are a nonprofit leader, there is opportunity to connect and grow an idea and a vision um, and to be able to sell it and get people to buy into it. But then it's just, a, just accessibility and an ability to connect, you know. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's definitely a, a small big city that is for sure and i also can't agree more that all it takes is asking the question can you help i i've never i've never been told no and so i think that does make a difference how about you mentioned um athletics were a place uh, you know place for you to find your way but is there a particular role model that when you think of that one person or maybe more than one but who was that for you I can, there, there are multiple people. It's hard for me to say one because um, it's, it's different levels. Like I, I will say like the game itself was like, it was a microcosm. I see it now, but it was a microcosm of life. Like it was this playing field where you get to test out and you get to engage in all these lessons that you learn within this, the confines of this game, you can apply all these things to life. Um, and if I look at individuals, I'll say first, you know, my, my brother, um, because we, we all need inspiration, right? I mean, like, you know, you don't, we don't know how, how important inspiration is. Like for a young person to see the possibility of what they can be and for it to, to spark something within them that causes them to work and to hope and dream and visualize yourself in that position. Like that's what my brother was for me, you know? He, he, he was a number of different things. Like my brother sold dope. My brother was a leader of a gang, but he was a phenomenal athlete. Like, you know, even to this day in my neighborhood, like people talk about him first before they talk about me. <laughs> like, you know, because he just was a phenomenal athlete, great football player, great baseball player, basketball, wrestling, you know. And when I watched him on Friday nights, and I, and I saw the passion that he played with and I saw him celebrate and I saw the crowd react like 
I was like, that's it, like right there. Like I, I want that. I want that feeling, you know, that he he felt when he played football. And I began to like to chase that. And I became obsessed, like with with that playing football, being like my big brother, and in, in that respect. Um, and and it it really it literally sparked something in me, you know. Um, it, it it gave me a form of of, of hope, of belief, and something outside of what I was living through, and and you know, going from home to home, um, dealing with neglect, like, you know, football became my outlet. Like people would say like, you're a different person person when you play football. Like, you know, I was all quiet, really subdued. But when I, when I got on that football field, you know, in Pop Warner and middle school and the high school, I just became a different person. And I, I just, you know, let my true being, you know, come out. So I know in your, and I know, like you said, you have three different projects that are pretty big, but Fight for Life very much, I think, calls out that athletic and wellness, um, I guess, spirit in the child. And so you're trying to infuse that into um, the social and emotional education, if you will. Talk about that. How did you decide when you were wanted to work with youth that you, did you just know athletics was going to have to be a part of that connection you made? Um, it kind of just, um, it, it took shape as I, as I continue to do the work. I mean, obviously, you know, with my background rooted heavily in collegiate, you know, sports, uh, professional, um, football, you know, when I, when I decided to establish, you know, uh, an organization to give back and to support kids, you know, that's what I knew, like, in like football was my first love and it was my, it was my ticket. It was my way out. You know, it was my form of social mobility. You know, um, so, you know, I, I started with what I knew. I knew football, so I, so I started with a football camp, you know, a free football camp where, you know, I can teach you skills and drills, and then I could talk to you about goal setting. I could talk to you about self-discipline. I can talk to you about responsibility and owning your actions. I can talk to you about teamwork, and I can make it tangible, right, Be because of this sport. Um, and, you know, I expanded to, well, you know, a big part of what we're combating is environmental. So I, I, I need to expose them to a new environment, right? So we started with, you know, then we added a, a, field, a field trip. Um, and then, you know, when I was injured, I believe, I believe it was my fourth year with Indianapolis Colts, I tore my ACL. That same offseason, I finished up my, my collegiate ed education. Uh, getting my degree from the University of Michigan. Then that time I finished with two classes, psychology and sociology. Um, and it made me obviously go deep into your environment and the impact that it has on your mind. Um, and then I knew like, I, gotta, I have to go deeper with the, with the mind. I have to go deeper in bringing awareness on the impact of the environment uh, on, our, on our mind and how our mind dictates our behavior and what we do. Um, so I started to mess around with curriculum um, at that point. And I, I started with social emotional learning, but I didn't even know what social emotional learning like was at that point in time. You know, I was just putting together lessons and tying them to athletics. Um, and then when I officially, you know, retired from football in 2012 and I, uh, you know, formally, you know, put together the Fight for Life Foundation, established it as a nonprofit organization and put together a board. Um, two of my uh, board members were a professor from IU Kelly School of Business, um, Todd uh, and Kim Saxton. 
Um, and, and Kim brought the strategy of social emotional learning to the table, looking at what I was doing with curriculum and saying, this is what that actually actually is, right? So then they created an avenue to, to do a better job of explaining um, what it is that we do. And then another board, board member, uh, my, my mother-in-law, Peggy, Peggy Hill, was an educator. So then we started to tie the academic standards into the lessons and things that I was created and started to expand upon the, the curriculum and start, start to more form, make it more formalized and comprehensive. And at that same time, another board member, Lynn Black, um, who was in education from a high level, um, introduced me to Earl Phelan and the Family Leadership Academy. And we formed that relationship there. And that was the first time we were able to get into schools. And then it's just been, you know, as you do the work, you know, you have a vision, but what it actually becomes is greater than what you see in the beginning, but it reveals more of itself to you as you continue to do the work. So as I, as I continue to do the work, I realize that, you know, one, what we're combating is adverse childhood experiences. Uh, we're being proactive in addressing social determinants of, of, of health. Um, and it's not only social emotional learning, but this is actually behavior health as well in a, in a, in a, in a bit of uh, mental health on the surface level of what we're doing in the classroom. And then a strategy of, you know, PBIS, positive behavior interventions and supports. Um, and, and all of that is in totality is like what the Fight for Life Foundation is right now. But in saying all of that long with the answer, like it was a process, right? Like it was a process. And this is one thing that I believe, like it was a process that started with relationship, right? I, I, I said a lot of relationships there that kind of, you know, help fill a gap for me in what I did not know yet. And as I continued to learn and move forward, they filled in my gaps and I became, you know, more equipped, more knowledgeable, and then they, then they continued to expand. So I was more informed, I had information so that I could see my opportunities better. And then I, I learned to discern and make, make good decisions, right? And I formed all of these different habits, you know, that have allowed me to kind of actualize what, what I see. And like, when you talk about manifestation, like it's, it's a process, like we can like literally manifest things and make things happen, but it's a process to actually doing that. So when right now, I, I think your website says you're, you've served over 9,000 students um, with, the, with this program. What is your goal? Um, what does success look like there? So success, um, one, I mean, just from just re reducing negative behaviors, if we just get some really simple, quick bullet points, ne reducing negative behaviors, reducing office referrals, um, increasing academic performance, um, increasing graduation rates, uh, specifically in underserved communities, so high rates of free and reduced lunch um, type of school system. Um, as an organization, it, it's creating this network. I say network because what we've done with technology, we've created an infrastructure for schools and social service providers to work together, to no longer work in, in silos, where the school is a primary place that our children go, where they spend the most time being educated. So when we have this monitoring system that engages them and we can track their behavior, and we can see their needs. And now they can seamlessly, when we identify needs, seamlessly request and access those things 
from a provider outside of the network. We've joined the two through our Building Dreams platform and expanding and growing that into a network where we have, we have schools from the elementary to the high school level on our platform. And then we have social um, services providers on the other end waiting for referrals to come through so that we can close this loop, right? And meet every kid where they are. So if I'm a kid that does well in the classroom, I will behave, I'm still going to get my social emotional learning. I'm going to have it be reinforced. And if I'm that kid, you know, um, I have emotional issues. I have outbursts. Now we, we have a way to monitor, to document, to connect you to the resources that you need. If I'm that student that's quiet, right, but I'm experiencing neglect, but, I'm, but I don't have the courage within me yet, so I don't have the voice in me yet to actually speak up, you know, through our, through our self-assessment, I can complete this, this tool, this resource that's going to document my level of stress, it's going to document how I feel, that's going to uh, allow me to express the characteristics within my home environment and how that affects me. So now it's giving me a voice to communicate to my teachers. And when that information comes through, if there's a need for referral to be made, they can seamlessly make that request. If you can uh, solve for that, I think I shared I was in education for 20 years and the barriers to resources for children are just far too great. So I, I'm so excited about what sounds like something you've, you've kind of broken into a space that um, I think would be a game changer in a lot of schools if, if there's no barriers to resources and, uh, and mental health and social and physical health needs and so forth. So I'm excited. I'm excited for your platform and what you're doing. If we have educators, principals, superintendents listening to this, how do they, how do they find you? How do they say, I want to learn more? What do they do? Um, well, they can go to our, go to our website, um, www.fflf.org. Um, you know, and you can request more information on the Building Dreams program. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see the request come in and we'll, we'll reach out to you. You know, um, that's where we capture our leads on our, on our website, um, you know, for engagement, for expansion, um, you know, to build relationships. Um, yeah, that, that would be the best thing that I would say to, you know, to go to our website, to do a little bit of exploring and read about our programming, to check out our, our blog, our news section, to kind of see strategically, you know, uh, what we're about, how we go about, you know, implementing our strategy, um, and then reach out to connect with us, um, you know, because, you know, it is like doing, I guess sometimes like leading is, is, is being out in front, not being afraid to be out in front. And sometimes you can be ahead of the time, you know, and which, which can make it, make it difficult um, at points and times to, to get traction and for people to actually see it because they're not there yet. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, perfect timing, you know, is it, it, no accident in my opinion, you know, um, when, when you're courageous, when you're bold and, and you step out and you think outside the box, eventually time will catch up you know, and it will seem like perfect timing, but you've just been you know, courageous enough to step out and lead. So that's, I have one more question, Robert, before I kick it over to you and let, let our listeners hear maybe a little less uh, education nonprofit speak. But um, so the three areas, you know, education, youth, 
poverty, um, the police, social injustice, and then housing. Um, those are three pretty big elephants to eat. How do you not get discouraged? Um, well, man, <laughs> everybody gets discouraged. Like, it's just how you respond. Like, you know, um, do you become defeated and you give up? Um, or do you lick your wounds and then you get up and you keep on moving? Like, I I've had to lick my wounds so many times where, you know, getting up is a part of my habit. It's a part of my nature, you know? So, like, I'm, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. Like, I, I kind of let go, like, in leaving, in leaving football, like, I had to let go so many expectations, like, you know, that I have for myself, that the world put upon me, you know, what I was supposed to be as a professional athlete, um, you know, um, yeah, just, just so many expectations that we, we can't let those things steer the direction that we go or who we are. Um, and we, we, we can't be afraid to like, let go. Like, you know, and I, I think letting go is, a, is the most important thing that you can do, you know, um, because we're, we're, we live in a world where there's so much content, there's so much imagery through TV, through social media, you know, through radio, like there's, we're, we're being bombarded with so much information as to how we should think and how we should be where you can, if you don't have a strong relationship with yourself and with a higher power, God, like it's easy to get lost. Like, you know, so like, I, I, I feel like I found myself and let, when I let myself go, like, and, and, and getting more focused on, on, on God and like just being led, like, and just being like water, like, you know, is it Bruce Lee, like be like water, like, you know, like you, you have to be able to flow, like, you know, um, it, it's going to be times when you crash, like it, it's, it's going to be times where it's a nice smooth canal, that, that, that you're gonna you're gonna you know just coast down, um, but you got to be able to move and maneuver through through all of it, right? Because life is the inevitable. Life is good and bad. Experiences are going to happen, um, and you have to be able to take those punches and roll with them. And but and you mentioned like eating an elephant, like and I, it is you do it one bite at a time, like you know. Um, I work on multiple things, but I do like I prior I, I prioritize. And this again, this again is because of athletics. Like I learned, I learned to prioritize my schedule, right? You know, as a collegiate athlete and, and having to go to class, right? You know, having my free time, um, but then having this to study my film, having to get my workouts in, that there's a lot to manage there, but you you probably you prioritize. So even in my work, like I prioritize, I prioritize with fight for life. I'm prioritizing, you know, um, with with pulse analytics with revive and different things are are, are leading you know at, at certain times you know but it's kind of where, where's the traction with this you know we, we step back but I, I know that i'm not going to accomplish all this you know in five years this is this is 10 15 20 20 years of work and you know i, I feel like it's going to be you know fight for life is standing on its own going to be successful pulse is going to is going to be is going to be big you know possibly the opportunity to sell it and profit big from that. Well, then I don't have to worry about a bank funding the work that I want to do with Revive. I can fund it, my, fund it myself, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so that, that's, how, that's how, I, how I think and, you know, my, my big picture, my vision of, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish during my time here on earth. Well, thanks for, and usually we don't like kind of bifurcate our 
talks like this, but I know Robert's going to take you into some more like football speak. So I'm going to kind of gracefully bow out because this is where I lose my expertise. So Robert, but thanks, Marlon. No, thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Well, Danielle, don't go away because you're coming back here in a few minutes. You are listening you. to okay. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Our guest today on the podcast is Marlon Jackson, whose list of athletic accomplishments is incredibly impressive as a uh, someone who just met Mr. Jackson not that long ago at an event and we had a great conversation. I did some research and the honors he has racked up through the hard work and attitude and diligence, blood, sweat, and tears that he talked about with Danielle is incredibly impressive. He was the Pennsylvania high school football player of the year. Marlon, let me ask you a question. As someone who's lived in Indiana a little bit and somewhat familiar with our version of Hoosier hysteria when it comes to basketball, how does that compare with the hysteria in the Keystone State when it comes to football? Oh, it's, it's, right, on, it's right on par. I mean, you know, that's what, we're born and bred for Friday nights. Like, you know, that, that, that's, that's what it's all about. You look at the, the legacy of, you know, Mike Dick or Joe Montana, um, just a, a long list of legends from Western Pennsylvania, uh, Dan, Dan Marino, you know, Joe Namath, like the, the list goes on and on. Jim uh, Kelly. Tony, Tony, Tony Dorsett, you know, um, there's just a, a, a rich tradition and history um, of football in the Keystone State in Pennsylvania. Um, and we, we, we grow up, you know, fantasizing, dreaming about, you know, having our opportunity to play on Friday nights because it's like, you know, as a kid, at least for me as a kid, I, I didn't necessarily think about, you know, the collegiate level um, or the professional level as much. I, I dreamed about about Friday nights, about high school football, and winning a state championship um, and, and, and playing and winning with my buddies that I was, you know, in the backyard playing football with growing up. Like, you know, those are the things that stand out to me in, you know, in, in Pennsylvania. You know, we, we love our football. Have you seen the movie Hoosiers? And is there a oh. football equivalent? Um, I can't think of a football equivalent, but Hoosiers, oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, that's that's classic. Every <laughs> At least at least in, in my area, yours as well. Like, you know, Hoosiers, that, that was something, especially because I, I was a big basketball fan as well. I played basketball growing up, you know, in, in sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Like, we, we had Hoosiers on replay, like, watching that, <laughs> watching that all, the, all the time as well as movies like Hoop Dreams and all those types of things as well. You grew up and prospered in Western Pennsylvania as a, as a football player and a student. I've had a couple of other uh, significant college athletes on the Leaders and Legends podcast. One was Reggie Brooks, 
who was from Oklahoma and then starred at Notre Dame as an All-American. And another one was Chris Zorich, who played at Notre Dame, was a star out of Chicago. And I asked them both kind of what it was like, what the recruiting process was like. Here you are, the state player of the year for Pennsylvania. I'm sure that the scholarship offers were just basically amounted to an avalanche at some point. And yet you chose to leave Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Penn State, probably had to fly over Columbus, beat Ohio State, and you played at Michigan. What was it like to be recruited by Lloyd Carr, the coach at the time? And why did you choose Michigan? And you played at Michigan 2001, 2004. Well, I mean, obviously it's um, special to be courted. You know, uh, you think about our society and, and going off to college and, you know, being accepted into college for, for most people. But, you know, as a collegiate athlete on scholarship, you know, you, you have your pick, right? They're coming after you. They're courting you. Um, you know, it, it is a, a memorable experience, you know? And, and for me, like, it, it started it started my sophomore year in high school where I received my, my, I received my first offer from the University of Penn State as a sophomore in high school. Um, and I, I grew up a Penn State fan, the Nittany Lions, you know? So I was obviously elated. Um, I thought that's I thought that that was where I would play my college football, um, you know, being recruited by Joe Pa at that time, who obviously was a legend nationally, but even more so in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, Michigan came into the picture as well as as well as others. You know, um, after I got that offer from Penn State as a sophomore, the list just continued to grow, um, expanded my junior year. And that's when Michigan came into the fold. My. My recruiter was Terrell Austin, who is now the defensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, has won multiple Super Bowls in the NFL. But at that time, um, he recruited me. He was a defensive backs coach at the University of Michigan, but he was also from Sharon, Pennsylvania as well. Oh. Um, so, you know, having that type of connection, um, my high school football coach who I lived with at the time, Coach Terrell in high school, um, so that was just one, one, you know, one relationship, key relationship that was in place, but throughout the recruiting process, it became more so about the other people at the university, the players, you know, when I interacted with the players, I felt like I was at home, you know, they, they made me feel like I was just hanging out with some of my friends in my, in my neighborhood. So in terms of like feeling comfortable like I began to feel at home at Michigan where as with my childhood team, my home state, I didn't have that same connection. I didn't have that same type of interaction. So I committed early going into my senior year to the University of Michigan. Um, I was not smart at that time and, and I did not take <laughs> all of my official, official visits, which I should have, <laughs> I, I would recommend <laughs> To every collegiate athlete being recruited, even if you even if you commit early, take all of your official visits, right? Um, but you know, I, I I got to a point where I felt at home, where I felt comfortable. And the the thing is that you know you would think you said fly over Ohio State, Ohio State didn't even re recruit me until my until my senior year, they started recruiting me. So where I had offers from Penn State, Miami. Um, Florida schools 
Tennessee, schools from all across the country, Ohio State waited until the end John Cooper, where he was gone. And when Jim Trussell got into, got into, into place there, um, Trussell came after me hard because Trussell watched me play um, in Sharon, Pennsylvania, when we would play uh, Youngstown Ursuline at Youngstown State University on their field. So he was very familiar with me and came after me hard once he was in at uh, Ohio State, but it was too late um, when I was committed to University of Michigan. I, I was going to take my official visit to Ohio State, but I, I received calls from the defensive coordinator at Michigan, Lloyd Carr, <laughs> Carol Austin, <laughs> when they found out I was going to take, I was going to take that visit uh, and they talked me out of it pretty quick. Is it, is it, you grew up in Western Pennsylvania, right? So that's steel country, salt of the earth, not exactly uh, balmy for lack of a better term. You decide to play at Michigan basically kind of the same weather did you ever think man I could go play in Gainesville or I could go play in Miami or I could go play in Tallahassee or someplace where it's just warm all year round and it's Florida and it's a completely different place and why not I've worked hard why not take this chance and play someplace completely different in terms of climate and were there ever times standing on the sidelines or on the field in Ann Arbor where it's 10 degrees where you're like man Gainesville sure does sound pretty nice right now well, the thing is, we, we only know what we know, like, you know, literally, literally, like your experience and what you live. So, like, until that point in time, when I started having college football business, I hadn't been outside of Sharon, Pennsylvania or Youngstown, Ohio. Like, I had went, I, my world was like that border and going and going back and forth. So I didn't know anything about palm trees and sunny skies, you know, and <laughs> warm, warm weather all year round. But if I would have taken those visits, I may have made a decision. <laughs> That's why I'm thinking that these uh, folks from Michigan are calling you. Reasons. I would have made it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> I would have made, like, made that decision for all the wrong all Let's the lock wrong. him up before he gets down to Tallahassee or, or Florida well, or Miami. Well, look, or like, I, I found out a little bit later, like my, my high school football coach, I'm, I'm still disappointed in him for this. Like he was hiding my letters from Florida. Like, and what Charlie Strong would come to, Come to my come to my high school to visit me, and, and but he wouldn't get me out of class. Oh, was at was at Florida, um, at at that time. So like you know, I in, in Miami, like this was like Miami came and and visited, offered me, and I, I I told him I told the coach right there in the spot, I was like, I'm not interested, I'm not coming to Miami. Like, and I, I think about that now, after being in the in the field and visiting <laughs> Miami. <laughs> In the Super Bowl in Miami, I was like, "What in the hell was I thinking?" <laughs> what was I thinking? And that's what I say. I said, to, "I said at least taking my visits for exposure purposes, like you know, to see more more of the world, you know." So, like when it comes to having those thoughts, like, "Dang, did I make the right decision?" Like, "Man, I could be playing here, I could be playing there." Nah, I, I never, I never, I never had any of that, you know, because because again, I only I knew what I knew, and I and I knew, you know, cold weather. Um, I knew snow. Um, I knew the Midwest, and that's what I was comfortable with at that time. What's it like to have these coaches who represent schools that are that are famous and programs that are that are famous for decades and decades of excellence in your living room, or putting their arm around you, saying, "Come play with us." I've recruited all these players over over the years, and you're that special that you deserve my one-on-one -on -one attention. It, it, you mentioned a little bit about your background. That just must have seemed almost surreal for you. 
you, you, you took the word, you plucked it right out of my head. That's the word that I was thinking about, surreal. I mean, it literally did not seem real, like, you know, um, and even from the point in time that it started to my life now, like my, my life went in, such, went in such a different direction that I like never really imagined, like, you know, that it could actually happen, you know? Um, and that's why I'm like so big on like anything is possible, right? You know, because of where I, where I came from, like this wasn't reality. Like this was just something that I saw on TV or that I, that I heard about happening to somebody else. But like from the point in time where I started getting all of these offers as a sophomore to the point in time where I was chosen to play in the first ever, you know, high school football, East West All-American game, which is now the um, Army, the Army, Army, U.S. Army game. game. Yep, mm -hmm. Army All-American game, you know, um, where you're like, you're local, like, you know, um, you're, you're all region, like you're, you're all state, you know, and then like you, you become player of the year in, in the state, you know, it's like, it's, it's not real. Like where maybe like people around you didn't realize how good you were, like, which in, in turn for you, like you limited your, yourself, like in how you saw, how you saw yourself and what you saw your capabilities of being, but because others around you couldn't see it, didn't speak of it. Like you didn't think that it was real. And then you have like the outside world come in and like recognize like your talents and, and your gifts. And it, and it helps you like understand like who you are and what you're fully capable of. And it, and, it, and it builds confidence in you. Like, which like, again, like affects my nonprofit work, like understanding like the importance of helping somebody understand, understand and see themselves, right? Like, and we only, as kids, you only do that by those adults around you, you know, turning on that light through, through in, engagement, through acknowledgement and like telling you, like you are this, like you can do that. Like, you know, because when you don't see it, like you, you put your, you human nature, you put yourself in the margin, like, and, and you don't believe that there's more to you and more for you. Like, and having that experience, like, I mean, obviously like it changed my, it changed my life. Like it changed my mind. Like it, it opened up my mind to like, to believe on a greater level that like anything is possible and that I can do and be anything that I put my, my, my heart and my mind to and that I believe in. Do you get the sense that for some of the kids you deal with through your charity, through your nonprofit, that you are there, Lloyd Carr, or Jim Tressel, that they look at you the way you looked at them decades ago? Yeah, I'm, I can, I, yes. I, I feel like I play a number of different roles for them. Like I, I'm, I'm that Jim Tressel, like, you know, or that Lloyd Carr where maybe, you know, initially, you know, they've heard about me because of some accolades, but then they see me and it's like, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's Martin, the Tom, all that, all that superficial stuff. Um, but, you know, I look at myself as more as that responsible adult that they may not have. Or if they do have that person, I'm that reinforcer in their life because of the systems and the content that I create. Like, I speak to them through their teacher. I speak to them through the platform. I engage them in behavior. Like, and because of my, my systematic approach, like, I'm, I'm influencing their mind because of the questions that we pose because of the nature of the curriculum, I'm helping them think about who they are. I'm helping them think about their environment. 
I'm helping them learn and make decisions. I'm helping them learning that there are consequences for our decisions, right? So, you know, I'm a number of different things for, for, for kids, like, and they all know me differently. Like, you know, I'm some of the kids, majority of the kids now, elementary, they, they know me for, you know, building dreams or they know me for being a blessing. Like, you know, and then I'm that guy that, that intercepted Tom Brady, right? You know, um, I, I'm in their hearts and minds a little bit differently. You played at the University of Michigan, had a successful run there, two Big Ten titles, went to four bowl games. Is there a particular college football game that you think about more than others? Um, I guess I don't, I don't think about them that that often. Um, but two two that stand out to me, my my breakout game, um, my sophomore year, you know. Um, I was a freshman. I was a freshman All-American going into my sophomore year. I was a preseason All-American. Um, get ready to play University of Washington. Reggie Williams, who I faced in the NFL, was playing um, for the Washington Huskies. Um, he was a freshman All-American. He was a preseason All-American. He demolished, you know, Michigan the previous year in the first game of the season. Had a breakout game, um, and there was a lot of hype around the matchup between him and myself. Um, and I went out there and had a career day and I shut him down, um, which, which put me on the map. You know, I, I set a record that day for pass breakup with six in one game um, and just kind of set the tone and established me for the rest of my career at the University of Michigan. Um, that, that's not the best stat to have. <laughs> uh, six pass breakups, and you know, you like to have those interceptions, at least two of those would have been even better. Um, but that one sticks out to me. And then a, a, another one, um, my same season, my sophomore season, you know, I, up, until, up, until this, up until this game, I, I've been balling out, just playing phenomenal football um, all season long. You know, we, we get into Big Ten play, have a couple really big games there. Um, we go to play University of Penn State, Bryant Johnson, um, who was a senior at that time after that season drafted in the first round by the Arizona Cardinals, um, you know, big matchup, big time. He demolishes me, you know, for the majority of the game. Um, it was a humbling experience. Um, but like, you know, football is a 60 minute game. Um, we went longer than 60 minutes and this game we went into overtime. Um, and even though it wasn't my best day, um, I stayed focused. And when the opportunity presented itself, you know, um, in a one-on-one scenario matchup, him and I, um, fourth down, um, they're going to take the lead, score, win in overtime. I know they're, they're going to go to him. You know, I'm in one-on-one coverage on the outside, man-to-man, um, ball snap, press coverage, back shoulder fade in the end zone. I break up the pass. I break up the pass. You know, um, we stop them. We score. We win the, we win the game. Um, and again, that's kind of another one of those, I say microcosm, you know, an example of what can, how we, how we need to approach life and our mindset, right? When things don't go our way, um, things don't go as scheduled, you know, get up, keep playing, put those negative plays behind you and focus on what's out in front of you and hone in and focus and make the play when the opportunity presents itself. Describe the intensity you played in two of the biggest football rivalries uh, during your time. One of them is 
University of Michigan versus Ohio State University, and the other is Indianapolis Colts versus the New England Patriots. Talk to us a little bit about just how, and or tell me they're not, but if they are, talk to us just about how different those games are, those rivalry games. Well, they're just different in nature, just, you know, college, because of the college environment and the professional environment. Uh, but just level of intensity, I would almost say that is greater with a Michigan versus Ohio State. I mean, you know, there's there's more history, you know, um, and time involved with that, you know, and the legacy of, you know, Woody and Bo um, and that relationship there in the state of Ohio and the state of Michigan um, and Toledo, how they fought for that, fought for that, that city. Um, there's just a lot of historical bad blood between both states, you know, and then you just add in this heated, passionate rival um, where like the primary objective for your season is to win that game. You know, um, you, you have a, a bunch of other goals, but that's kind of at the top of the list, you know, to beat Ohio State, you know, for them to beat Michigan. Um, when you work out in the off season, like that's a part of the mantra, mm -hmm. beat Ohio State and this rep, doing it to beat Ohio State. And it's the same thing, vice versa, for them as well. So just, you know, from that perspective, from that standpoint, it's on another level. Um, the rivalry between the, the, the Colts and the Patriots, it, it's extremely intense for, for professional rivalry, um, but not like Ohio State and Michigan. Um, that rivalry between, you know, the Colts and the Patriots, was one-sided, you know, for a long time. Um, it was exciting for me in the time that I was with the Colts to kind of be a part of that change and to bring balance in order to that rivalry. Um, you know, that AFC championship game was so great, you know, and it was almost greater than the Super Bowl in the moment, you know, because of that, it was kind of like getting over the hump, you know, um, because for so often, you know, the Patriots came out on top. You know, and for us to, in the fashion that we, we did it, being being down at half by, by a large margin, um, having a history of losing to that team in, in big time situations and moments, um, to come back, to have it be uh, with the Super Bowl on the line, you know, those are things that just took it all to another another level. Um, and that, but it's, it's intense, but in my opinion, not on the same level as Ohio State, Michigan. Marlon Jackson is our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast. He was a first-round draft pick of the Indianapolis Colts in 2005. You've paid, played in some big stadiums in the Big Ten, the Big House, the Horseshoe, and obviously Penn State has an enormous stadium. But were any of those stadiums as loud as the RCA Dome was in the fourth quarter or second half of that AFC championship oh, no. game against the Patriots when you guys made your run? Not, not even close. <laughs> not even, not even close. The only thing that could possibly compare is like West, West, and it's not the biggest stadium, Wisconsin. Wisconsin gets extremely loud. And when they play, they play jump around at the start of the fourth quarter. And like, you can feel the stadium shaking from the entire fan base, literally jumping up and down in the Raptors. Um, 
But that game, the AFC Championship game against the Patriots, like I tell people all the time, like that was a game where I can truly say like everything that I had in me was left on the field, like where I was com completely spent at the end of that game in the last snap, like where there was nothing left. When they say leave it all on the out on the field, every player literally left it all out on the field. Like it was like the level of focus, like in the intensity, like is, is, is unmatched. I don't know if I've ever, if I, again, if I'll be in those, in a situation like that, you know, because like every moment, every play, every second, every decision that you, that you, that you make dictates the outcome of this game. And you, you have to hone in and focus on such a deep level to not feel the magnitude of the moment, but just to be in the moment, you know? And that can be a difficult thing to do, but that's a part of athletics. And, you know, I, I've never been more dialed in uh, as I was and as my team was that second half of that, of that football game. And as Tom Brady throws what turned out to be the fatal interception your way to seal the win for the Colts that day, talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be on that island, knowing that probably at the time he's either 1 or 1A, one best quarterbacks in the league, depending on whether you're a Manning fan that he's coming your way, he's throwing the ball your way, and you have a chance to be the hero or the goat. That's something that's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of people get to experience. What's that like to be on the field? And when you secured that ball and it was in your hands and no one was going to take it from you, what was that feeling? So it's, it's the difference between thinking and feeling, right? Like you, you, you can, it's okay to think, you know, before the play, as I did, right, I, I processed a lot of information really quickly before that play. But once the ball snapped, it, it, you, you, you zone out, and, and, it's, and it's all field, you know. And then it becomes like what you studied, what you thought prior to the play is actually happening, and you're just reacting, right? And, and it becomes muscle memory, um, and it becomes, you know, literally memory of before the play started, I saw the formation that they came out in. I saw the alignment of the wide receivers. I understand his tendency, his habit of looking one way and then blindly throwing the other way, right? So you, you, you gather all that information and then you make a decision. So, you know, normally in that circumstance, I was supposed to be maybe five to eight, five to seven yards deep. But because of the, the situation, because of me seeing the alignment of the wide receivers, Understanding all of that, I backed up deeper. So I, so I said to myself, and this is very quickly happening, like, I don't want to have to have any wasted steps when I break on the football. So if I back up and I sit and I read him, I can just react. And then when the ball snapped, I see him look the opposite way. So my, my memory tells me he's coming to me, even though he's not looking at me, right? Understanding that he's going to look opposite to get me to try to dictate what I do and then maneuver me and have me out of the way. But because I understood that I sat and even before he fully turns to me, as soon as he starts looking at me, I started going, I started breaking already. Right. And because of that, when you watch the play, it's like, you know, it's synchronized, it's harmony. Like it's all happening in, um, in tandem, right. Where he turns and I break. And if you look at my body, the, the camera angle, as his arm comes forward, it's like it's bringing my body forward. Like, 
It's like being in tune with the moment. Like, and you only get in tune with moments through preparation and then letting go in a moment to let all that preparation take over so you can execute. And for me, that like, that's what happened in that play. Have you ever been hugged as hard as you got hugged after that interception? Now, Rob, Robert Mathis jumped. <laughs> you know, Robert, Robert Mathis is a big, big, strong guy. Um, and he was coming at me to make sure I got down on the ground um, as well. And even like another thing, I, I speak about preparation. So like, you notice in that play that I, I slid to the ground, right? Like there was a reason why I slid to the ground. Like the previous week, the same scenario unfolded, right? where the Patriots were, were down, they were losing, they were driving to come back and win the game. They were playing the San Diego Chargers, right? Phillip Rivers and those guys. And the same situation happened where they're driving to win. The Chargers intercept the ball. The Chargers defense back, tries to run the ball back. He gets stripped by Troy Brown. The Patriots recover. They go down, they score, they win the game. Because I saw that the previous week, my reaction was to catch it and get down because of that memory, because of that muscle memory, because of the preparation that occurred prior to the actual event. One more question before I turn it back to Danielle for a few more questions before we end the podcast. And that is in some ways was the Super Bowl victory as exhilarating as it was over the bears in Miami. Was it anticlimactic? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it was obviously winning a Super Bowl, it's phenomenal, you know, but if you ask anyone on our team, like the, the real moment that stands out to them, um, which felt like the Super Bowl was beating the Patriots. It was getting over the hump, getting over the top. I, I, I believe like we expected to beat the, the Chicago Bears. Like we, we, we felt like the New England Patriots were a far better team, right? We, we, we were not confident in Rex Grossman. We, we, felt we, had, we felt like we had a lot of opportunity with Rex Grossman at quarterback. And we felt like Peyton Manning could pick apart their defense. So we were extremely confident. We expected to win, right? Where it was like, because of the history with the Patriots, you don't necessarily come in with that same level of confidence. But to, to do it and get over the hump, it made that moment a, a, a little bit greater, a little bit sweeter than actually winning the Super Bowl. But take nothing away from the Super Bowl to Super Bowl, obviously be world champions, put all that effort and energy in and to reach your goal. That's what it's all about. A long way from Sharon, Pennsylvania. That's for sure. Danielle, do you have another couple of questions? So uh, I had two. And so in all these various scenarios, various stadiums, were you ever starstruck or were, was there a coach or an athlete that you thought, I really want to shake this person's hand? I think I've been starstruck by meeting Bo Jackson. Like, and that, that wasn't on the field. Like that was, uh, and what's the country club? It's right. It's, it's near, it's here, it's here in Carmel. Um, and it was a, it was a, a golf outing with finish line. Um, and I, and I got to sit down like face to face at a table and have a, have a drink with Bo Jackson. Um, and like for that, like me, that, that was like, that was childhood. That was Bo knows like, you know, all these different things. And I, I wanted to ask him for an autograph, but I didn't like, you know, cause I was like, I was so nervous. And like, you know, he, I think he had told a story about somebody asking about an autograph or something like that. So like, I was like, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask both for an autograph. I'm just gonna sit here 
like, and, and be cool and enjoy the moment of like just sitting here and talking to him. That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, my, um, this is for my husband. He is, he's a coach and he was a college athlete at Purdue and he's a huge University of Michigan fan. In fact, I was cold. So he brought me his Michigan blanket, okay. but he always says to, he's, he's still a coach now, physical, mental, mental, and technical. You have to have all three. Mm-hmm. If you were going to rank physical, mental, technical in your career, do they ebb and flow, or is there one that takes the lead all the time for you? Uh, mental. I, I, I think I think everything starts there. Like you know, um, it's the gateway to everything else. Your mind, like your mind, it dictates how technical you know you can be, how physical you can be. Like mind, we, we say, mind over mind over matter. Mm-hmm. Like you know, the physical part, part is nice. But if you you can be as strong as you and I and I'm known I've seen it firsthand like you know it's we 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 say we say this all the time you know look like Tarzan play like Jane like you know I I had a lot of I've seen a lot of players that they are just shredded and they're ripped but they don't have the mindset right you know they don't have the the grit you know they don't have the self discipline which is a mindset thing to actually put that physicality to work and make it look as good as it actually, you know, as it actually is. Um, so I say for me, I'm going every day, all day, your, your mind is your most valuable asset in any respect, in any aspect of life. Well, as the, as the Girl Scout CEO, I will take the Jane analogy as a huge compliment to, uh, to girls and women everywhere. And as I, and I'm, I don't mean, I didn't mean I just, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm serious. That's awesome. Yes. I, mean, I hope that didn't come off the wrong way. It was, it, there was no, it was a compliment. no, I absolutely feel like it's a compliment. Um, so anyhow, Robert, do you want to move on to our five questions or do you want to take them? No, why don't you go ahead? You go ahead and do that. Okay. So we end for every single person with the same five questions. They're rapid fire. So what was your first job? Uh, landscaping. Okay. What um, was your first concert? Uh, Emin- no, 50 Cent. Do you remember where? In Detroit. Okay. Yeah, I was, in, I was in, in college. So Robert, you always have a follow-up to the concert question. Anything there? I don't know who 50 Cent is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Curtis, Curtis Jackson, he's now he, he's, he's a rapper turned into a screen playwright, um, a TV producer. Are you familiar with this show? Uh, I can't think of the name of it right now. He has a couple of shows on Stars. Now one is on ABC for, for Life. On last, ABC. The last rap CD I bought was Houdini's Greatest Hits because 80s rap rules. And we should mourn the uh, uh, Jalil, I think just died the lead singer of Houdini just a few days ago so that's my contribution to that question go ahead Danielle sorry okay sorry about that (laughs) usually usually music's Robert's thing um what is a book that you've read that you would recommend to others um Um, I'm trying to it's, it's, it's downstairs on my bookshelf I'm just trying to remember the the name of it right now uh, it's eluding me right now. If I can run out and get the book, I can tell. I can give you the title. 
That's okay. Robert, what do you do when they can't remember? Give them a pass. Ask him for the, another book. Oh, 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 I was gonna say he beat the Patriots. I'm racking my brain on books. I mean, I'm reading three different books right, right, right now. Um, and I, I read a couple during 2020. Um, Relentless um, will be a book. Will be a book that I would, would recommend to somebody. Um, it was it was written by Michael Jordan's trainer. Um, also, he was also Kobe Bryant's trainer. Um, trained Wayne Wade as well. Um, and it's a book about mentality and having a relentless mentality. Um, obviously, the analogies are centered around athletics, but all things that apply apply to life overall and how we pursue our goals and how we overcome obstacles and barriers that are in front of us. All right. I even wrote that one down. Good. Thanks. What about, shift a little bit, a moment in history, and if you could be there in person to witness it, what moment would you want to be there for? Uh, Martin Luther King, I have a dream speech. Um, That's been a very popular choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I, you know, I feel like I owe, you know, everything that I, I've experienced, like I owe to him and others in that time of civil rights that fought for civil rights and equality. Um, and even though, we haven't made it, you know, fully to the world that he visualized. We're on our way, um, and it's a process. And just to be able to experience the level of courage that individuals like himself um, displayed for others and modeled, you know, I don't think we today really have any idea, like what that type of persecution feels feels like, and to remain relentless in spite of that type of resistance and that type of hate and to not, you know, let it deter you from the goal, that's, that's power. Like that's the internal power that I, I hope to attain someday. Thanks. And the last question, if you could have two hours off the record with somebody living and sit down for dinner with them and just talk. Who would you want to talk to? Uh, Jay Z. Jay Z. This like you know like life is like is about evolution, right? And I and I look at him as a model for somebody like me, like that comes from the ghetto, comes from the hood, that's been able to rise from those situations um, to become a professional music, you know, football. And then to even expand and evolve from that point where people may have marginalized you there, but still have so much more potential um, as a businessman, um, as, a, as a leader, you know, there's just so many levels of the conversation that I want to dive into and, and pick his brain philosophically about his mindset, about his approach and, you know, key relationships and what does he look for and look out for how he makes moves and how he decides, you know, um, which direction to go and who do I go that way with, you know? So I, I would like to pick Jay-Z's brain or Kendrick Lamar. Okay, perfect. I don't think we've had that Jay-Z as an answer, Robert, before. No, but the explanation makes perfect sense, especially given, given what Marlon's doing these days. 
You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today on the podcast has been Marlon Jackson, much more than a football hero. He's an entrepreneur, he's an activist, and he's someone who loves this city. We're very, very lucky to have him. Marlon, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Danielle, thank you for co-hosting. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.